Please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 39 through 56. Luke 1, 39 through 56. Please give your full attention to God's holy, inerrant, transformative word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. A few days ago, my wife and I were reading Luke chapter 10 together, which tells about a time that Jesus and his disciples visited the home of two sisters named Mary and Martha. Jesus sat down in their home and he began to teach. And Luke tells us that Mary situated herself right at Jesus' feet and looked at him expectantly and absorbed all the words that he had to say. But at the same time, her sister Martha was running all over the house, being a good hostess, probably preparing a big meal for Jesus and his disciples. But after a while, as you know, Martha became angry and exasperated, not only at Mary, for not helping her, but even at the Lord himself. Because listen to what she said to him. She said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Well, instead of rebuking Mary, the Lord Jesus gently rebuked Martha. And he said to her, you have the wrong priorities. He says, Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Now, we teach all the time. The Bible is very clear from beginning to end that serving others is our calling. 
It is good and necessary for disciples to be serving. But serving must never take the place of hearing God's word and reflecting upon it. We, my wife and I talked after we read that passage, we talked about how some Christians, by their temperament, by their nature, tend to be doers. They show their love for Jesus by doing things, by making meals for the needy, by setting up chairs, by watching children in the nursery or taking up the offering. Other Christians are, by nature and and temperament, contemplative. Their love for Jesus is much more shown by reading scripture, praying, studying theology, having deep conversations with brothers and sisters in the Lord about the word of God and how it applies to life. And I think we would all agree as we think about whichever tendency you have in life, whether you tend to be a doer or tend to be contemplative, we should be both. It's it's a false dichotomy to say you should be one or the other. You should be both. But what Jesus teaches us in this passage, in his interactions with Mary and Martha, is that even though both are very, very important to the Christian life and to discipleship, there is a priority of one over the other in terms of order, in terms of sequence. The contemplation of God's word must come before the doing. That contemplation of the word of God is the foundation and the source of our doing. And it must come in that order. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing his teaching, that must come first. And then we must obey what James tells us in his epistle, that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Both are absolutely necessary, but contemplation of the word of God must come first. That's one of the striking features of these birth narratives, of the stories that are gathered together by Luke to tell us how Jesus Christ came into the world. One thing you notice over and over is that the people that were involved in these these events, that were impacted by these events, all of them were deeply considering the meaning and significance of them as they happened. For instance, if you just go to the end of the birth narratives and at the end of chapter 2 in, in the Gospel of Luke, you'll see there it says about Mary, after Jesus was born, after she had heard the witness of the shepherds and the witness of the angels, it says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Mary treasured up the, all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary was contemplative, just like the later Mary was contemplative at, at the feet of Jesus. She listened, she absorbed, she embraced the depth of God's word. And in today's passage, we're going to look at Mary's prayer or Mary's song. It's usually called a song. We don't know if she ever put a tune to it or not. I would like to hear that tune if she had one. But her prayer and her praise that it's expressed in what we call the Magnificat is a reflection of on the great things that God had done, not just for her, but for all people. And secondly, then, we'll have the prayer, song and prayer of Zechariah, the song or prayer of the angels, the song or prayer of Simeon. These are all 
God's people taking a selah, taking a moment to stop, meditate, consider the significance of what God was doing. The other thing that all of these reflections, these songs, these prayers, all these reflections tell us is that all of these people were students of the Word of God because the Word of God is in every phrase that they use. They were quoting their Old Testament scriptures in their prayers. We'll look at the importance of that. It gave them insight into what God was doing in their lives. I say all this because in our culture, even in our Christian culture inside the walls of the church, our Christmas celebrations have become much more about doing than contemplating. We're so busy with the shopping and the baking and going to parties and going to concerts and wrapping presents, all the extra activities that we have, we're so busy doing that we have no time to contemplate the importance of what God has done and he is doing, and particularly to contemplate the deep significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And as a result, after Christmas and New Year's are over, most of us are more stressed and burned out than we were before they began. This is meant to be a time to contemplate, a time to refresh, a time to recharge. That's what Advent is. To be spiritually refreshed by having your, your mind renewed by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God so that you will have the spiritual strength to go out and do, to go out and serve because you must do that as well. So I'm going to take a moment to look at the three people who responded to the coming of Christ in this passage we read just a moment ago. Elizabeth, John, and Mary herself. Three responses to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And by incarnation, we're talking about God, the Son, taking on human flesh. The mysteries if, you, if you've heard this your whole life, you've been raised in the church, you're a covenant child, you're raised in a, in a Bible-believing home, you've been in church your whole life. One thing that amazes me, not only do I hear these passages every Christmas, I have to preach these passages every Christmas, but every time I dig into these texts, I find something more, something deeper. God's word is so rich and so deep. Let's take some time to reflect upon the coming of Christ through the eyes of Elizabeth, John, and Mary. Soon after... It may have only been days, may only a couple weeks, whatever. Very soon after Gabriel had appeared to Mary to inform her that she as a virgin was going to miraculously bear a child who would be the great son of David, the awaited Messiah who would redeem and rescue his people. She had just heard this. She sets off on a trip to go visit her relative Elizabeth. She had to go out into the countryside we don't know what town, the town's not named in scripture, a matter, matter of fact, but commentators guess it was maybe dozens of miles away. She made a, a hard trip to go visit her relative Elizabeth. She does this because, if you'll remember last week, Gabriel had hinted to her that she might find encouragement from visiting Elizabeth because Elizabeth herself had experienced a miraculous pregnancy. Elizabeth, who was uh, barren throughout her entire life, unable to bear children, and well past the age of bearing children, yet God miraculously allowed her and her husband to conceive a child, a child that was promised to be the forerunner, the, the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. 
And so here's Mary, you've got these two women. You've got one who's a, a young teenager. We said she was probably between the ages of 12 and 14. A virgin who is pregnant with the Messiah going to visit the senior citizen who is pregnant with the one who had prepared the way for the Messiah. Can you imagine the unique bond that these two women would have as they come together as God was working in them and through them? And we will see that by this point, Mary had already been, as in the words of the angel Gabriel, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Already, conception had taken place that God had created within her womb the baby Jesus, the unborn baby Jesus. As we observe the reactions to Mary's arrival, let's begin with Elizabeth. And the thing that strikes me most as I look at Elizabeth's response to Mary's coming, to Mary's visit, is humility. As Mary approaches the house, she shouts a greeting. And the first response of Elizabeth was to say, ouch! More on that in a minute. The second thing she says, with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now that's a Jewish way of saying, Mary, you are the most blessed woman ever because of what the Holy Spirit had revealed to her about Mary's calling. How did Elizabeth know it? It says at the end of verse 41, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had revealed to her that Mary was bearing the one that she calls my Lord. It's remarkable. Not only did she know that Mary was pregnant as a virgin, but she understood that the one that she bore was her Lord. And in a sense, bows before him, even though he was only days or a couple of weeks into development as an unborn child. Well, how did all this impact Elizabeth? What's her response? Humility. Look at verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She recognized her unworthiness to be in the presence of the mother of the Lord, but particularly of the Lord himself. That's the common reaction that we are going to see in the rest of the book of Luke, is when somebody comes to the awareness of who Jesus Christ is, they are immediately struck with a strong sense of unworthiness to be in his presence. In, in Luke chapter 5, for instance, Simon Peter, the apostle Peter, when he first meets Jesus and he is witness to Jesus' miraculous power and his authority, Remember what his response was? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I am unworthy to be in your presence, let alone to be your disciple. How could the Lord accept one such as he? How could the Lord accept one such as Elizabeth? Why is it granted to me, she says, That's why the vilest sinner is not far from the kingdom if they will recognize that they are unworthy. It doesn't matter how great your sin is, that the first step towards knowing Christ and being in his kingdom is recognizing that you are not worthy to stand in his presence. 
because it is out of that sense of unworthiness that you ask for grace. And when you ask for grace by faith, he always says yes. He always accepts those who will come to him by grace through faith, acknowledging their need of him. And so, as we think about Elizabeth's reaction to meeting the Lord for the first time in the womb of Mary, my bottom line to you is contemplate the incarnation like Elizabeth did so that you might respond the same way with a strong sense of unworthiness which produces the kind of humility that the Lord is pleased to work with. Why is this granted to me? Why is this granted to me? The second response is the response of John, the unborn John, six months in the womb. And that response is joy. The reason that I said that Elizabeth's first reaction to hearing Mary's greeting was to say, ouch, was because, it says in verse 44, she tells Mary, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Leaped in her womb. Now, he's six months in development. He's six months in the womb. If you've been a mother, you've known at six months, you're feeling some kicking. You're, you, you know that that child is there. She, she had felt normal kicking of a six-month unborn child. But something was very different about this kick. Something said to Elizabeth that this child has leaped for joy in her womb. The Greek word literally means to skip in delight or to leap for joy. Or as one commentator used the word, I think, to get the point across how painful it must have been for Elizabeth, he vaulted in her womb. John was doing a victory dance inside of Elizabeth. Whenever a football player scores a game-winning touchdown or a baseball player hits a walk-off home run, same reaction every time. Players come, his teammates come flooding out to meet him, and they all start jumping up and down. I think it's hilarious. They jump up and down like they're on pogo sticks. It happens every time. And these big, burly, athletic men go out there and act like a bunch of little boys jumping up and down. As If you saw the Army-Navy game, the, the, all the, the, those big manly cadets and you know, uh, the, uh, the soldiers out in the stands are all jumping up and down throughout the whole game in joy. That's what we do when we rejoice. And that's what John did. Now, scientists will tell us that a six-month child in development, an unborn child in the womb, does recognize his mother's voice. But what's striking here is that John recognizes Mary's voice as the mother of the Messiah. Now, how could that be? You can imagine why this would create great joy in John because of his calling to be the last Old Testament prophet to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah and the new covenant and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. I don't know how much that a six-month unborn child can understand. There's a mystery there, but he understood enough to rejoice. That's all I know because that's what the Word of God says. How did that happen? Well, back in verse 15 of chapter 1, Remember then that the, the angel told Zechariah, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Again, a mystery. But God has told us 
that John the Baptist had the, was filled with the Holy Spirit even while he was in the womb, and that's why he could recognize the mother of the Messiah greeting and jump for joy that he was meeting for the first time the Messiah that he would be called to prepare the way for. Now, I must, in this cultural context, I cannot just pass over this, even though it's not germane to the main point. I have to point out, John was a full person. John was a person made in the image of God, six months in the womb. John was able to be filled with the Holy Spirit. John was able to leap for joy. John was protected in the womb until birth, and all children should be protected in the womb until birth because they are people made in the image of God. Contemplate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want the joy that John felt in your life? You need joy in your life? Contemplate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You will never plumb the depth of that truth, no matter how many times you study it. And it will cause a deep, satisfying joy to well up in your soul. And Nehemiah told the people of God in his day, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't try to serve without strength from the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, that brings us to the response of Mary herself. And she responds in awe and worship. In verses 46 through 55, she gives her response to the confirmations of Elizabeth through the power of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the unborn John through the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, it's either a prayer, may may have later been put to a tune, certainly is later put to a tune, many centuries later put to a tune, but we call it the Magnificat because the first word in the Latin version of the New Testament, which, which was written much later, in the Latin version, the first word is Magnificat, which means magnifies. That's the first word of her prayer. The word magnify in Latin means the same thing it does in English. To magnify something is make it bigger. Well, we don't make God bigger, so it obviously doesn't mean to magnify the Lord. Doesn't make it doesn't mean to make him bigger. What does it mean? Well, a few months ago, I made reference in a sermon to a song that I heard a while ago that the, 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 the recurring chorus of the song keeps, keeps running through my head. I think of it often. I just thought... It, had no, no intention of the writer, I don't think, but to me it was profound. The, the, the way that the chorus of the song goes, goes like this. The stronger the telescope, the more stars there are. The stronger the telescope, the more stars there are. Now, having a stronger telescope doesn't create more stars. Having a stronger telescope enables you to see more stars. You don't You don't make the heavens more glorious by looking at them through a telescope, but you appreciate the glory of the heavens more by looking at them through a telescope. And that's what it means to magnify the Lord. Is to have, when you have a greater vision of how glorious God is, how great he is, how powerful he is, how merciful he is. And those are the phrases that Mary uses here. He is mighty, he's done mighty things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to all generations. His mightiness, his holiness, his power, 
and his mercy. She has had her vision of who God is expanded. He's not gotten any bigger, but her view of his glory has gotten bigger. And the result of that is awe. Just like looking through a telescope at the heavens produces awe within you, looking at a greater vision of the glory of God than you've had before will cause you to worship if you are born again. And so she magnifies the Lord. Another, again, just let me point out again that Mary's prayer, her song of praise, is full of Old Testament language. Matter of fact, in our Sunday school class, we've been studying 1 Samuel, and if you were in that class, you'll know that Hannah's prayer, Hannah was another mother who was beyond, she was barren and beyond the age of bearing children, but had a miraculous child by the Lord's grace. And after her child is born, she offers up a prayer. And Mary's prayer sounds a lot like her prayer. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and compare it to what, what Mary prays here. So she knew well Hannah's prayer, probably had it memorized. But she also adds in many phrases. You'll find many of the phrases she uses in the book of Psalms. Matter of fact, one commentator said that they figured out that there's reference to 12 different Old Testament books in the words of the song that she sings or the prayer that she makes. She knew the scriptures. I said last week, she as a, as a young, very young uh, Jewish girl would not have had formal education, but her parents were faithful. They taught her the word of God. She knew scripture. And when she sang her praises or when she prayed, the words of scripture became her vocabulary. That's how well she knew the word of God. And that's what we should be striving for. People say, I don't know how to pray. Well, pray scripture. Scripture gives us models all over the place about how to pray. Pray scripture like Mary prayed. Again, just underlining the point that this was a young woman who was contemplative by nature, obviously, but she sat at the feet of the Lord and absorbed his word. And out of that came her devotion and her praise and her life of service. Her focus quickly shifts from herself. He's done great things for me, she said. But notice, and this is how we should always pray. Yes, don't, don't hesitate to pray for yourself and to thank the Lord for what he's done in your life and to be self-focused in that regard. But her focus quickly shifts to what God is doing for all his people. All generations will call her blessed. And then she launches off in what God is doing in the big picture throughout all the generations. And here you have a summary of what God had been doing from the beginning, ever since the fall of man, ever since the sin in the garden. God has been working to restore paradise. And this is what's described. Matter of fact, there have been people told, don't use this passage of scripture in places where people are prone to revolution, in countries where there's oppression or whatever. They said, don't use this scripture in churches. They've been, actually been told that because it sounds very revolutionary. And it is. I mean, he, she says, you know, she's basically giving the overarching theme of all scripture here, which, as Jesus put it later in his teaching, is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That the gospel, when it comes into this world, the whole purpose of the gospel is to turn things upside down from the way that things are out there in the world. That the humble are exalted and the prideful are humbled. And that's what she describes. She says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. 
and the rich he has sent away empty. Those who have put their trust in their pride, those who have put their trust in their might, their power and their position, those who have put their trust in their riches and their possessions, in the end they are sent away empty and lost. But she also gives the gospel. She says that her son was sent to redeem and restore God's people and all creation. She says he has exalted those of humble estate just like her. He has filled the hungry with good things. Already she had a sense that Jesus, her, her son, the God's son, would be the bread of life and the water of life and would satisfy the deepest and truest needs of those who would receive him. And then finally, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. You know, Jesus would later preach his first sermon in Nazareth, her hometown. And in that first sermon, he turns to an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah that spoke about what his, his ministry would all be all about, what his mission was all about. Look at uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Mary understood that God's covenant was what drove history. That God had made a promise that mankind had rebelled against him and that they were under his wrath and condemnation, but God graciously has chosen Abraham and said to Abraham, I'm going to make of your family a great nation. And that great nation I'm going to place in a great land, a strategic land, to be a light to the nations. And through your family, which would become a nation, would become one who would be a blessing to all nations and rule all nations. And Mary says, God has remembered his covenant. He has remembered to be merciful according to his promise, the promise that he made to Abraham. It's all coming to pass in the birth of this child that was in her womb. She understood that by God's grace. Now the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to tell us how that kingdom would come into place, how the proud would be brought down, how the rich would be sent away empty, how the humble would be exalted, how the hungry and the thirsty and the oppressed would be served and fulfilled. We're going to see it in the rest of the Gospel of Luke as it recounts to us the ministry of Jesus Christ, and then in volume two, the book of Acts, as his apostles take the gospel to the world, we see how his kingdom comes. And it does not come by force. It comes by the preaching of the gospel. It does not come from external coercion, but from internal transformation of those who are called by grace. And that's what's still happening today. I've been really quite frustrated over the last few years as I've listened to Christians debate. There's so much talk about social justice out in the world, about the need to care for the poor, the needy, the oppressed. And I want to say amen. We do need to care for the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. That's scriptural. That's part of what our service is about. 
But we have an argument going on in the church about, well, that is the, some people say that is the gospel. That's what we're to be all about. And they don't really care much about doctrine. They don't care much about scripture. They don't care much about the incarnation or the crucifixion or justification or sanctification. They just want to go out and help the poor and the needy and free the oppressed. Then you have other people who say, oh, you know, those people that all they want to do is social good. And, you know, we just need to worry about witnessing and sharing the gospel. And they're both wrong. What we're learning in the example of Mary is that care for the needy and the, pre- the needy and the oppressed flows out of the gospel. Again, contemplate the word of God first. Dig deep into his scriptures, into truth. Sit at the feet of Jesus, absorb, embrace the truth. And then you will find the humility and the joy and the awe and worship that will empower your service to the world. And then, yes, having been immersed in the word of God and the truth, go out and care for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. Don't separate the two. Mary teaches us, contemplate the word of God. In that, you will receive a humble spirit, a joy that will fill your deepest needs and a worship that will drive you to be like Christ and to fulfill the mission that Christ has given to the church. All of this is going to culminate. That's really the implication of what Mary says here is that one day all things will be made right. It'll culminate in a second coming of Christ. Now, how much of this did she understand? I don't know. But what Christ told us is that he is coming again. And when he comes again, it will not be in the humiliation of his first coming, in the servitude of his first coming, it'll be in glory. It'll be in victory. It'll be to bring to completion this rescue of the people of God and the restoration of the creation to everything it was intended to be. Every every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord when he returns. And when we appropriately sing joy to the world at this time of year, we're actually talking about the second coming. You realize that that, that that Christmas carol was written about the second coming, not the first coming, but I've never complained about that because I think we should always be looking to the second coming of Christ when he will bring his work to completion. Advent is a time of preparation, a time of preparation for the coming of the Lord. A reflecting upon his first coming, deeply reflecting upon his first coming, and reflecting upon his coming that will come in the future. We need to stop the busyness. We need to contemplate the meaning and significance of Christ's comings. If I could give all of you one Christmas present, if the Lord just granted me the gift, say, whatever you want to give the congregation, you can give them one Christmas present. You know what I think I might give you? One hour. One hour added to every day so that your days last 25 hours instead of 24 hours. Why? So that you could spend that hour in scripture reading, scripture study, prayer, worship. That's the best gift I could give to you. But even if I could give it to you, you know what would happen? You would abuse it, wouldn't you? You would use that extra hour in your day for an extra hour of sleep, wouldn't you? You'd use it for an extra hour of work, some of you. You'd use it as an extra hour to spend on your hobby, wouldn't you? My point is, it's not about quantity of time, it's about priority. 
And I just want you to see from this passage that your spiritual strength comes from joy. And your joy comes from humility before the Lord. And your humility before the Lord comes from contemplating the truth of his word. Contemplate the word and then go and serve in the joy, the strength of the Lord. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you get the order there? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Contemplate the truth. Give thanks in response to what God has done for you. And then go and do all things in the name of Christ and serve. Let's pray. Father, help us to change. Change is very difficult. The older we get, the more difficult change becomes. But we have allowed our lives to become disordered in terms of biblical priority. We are giving our time and efforts to things that are not only sinful in many cases, but even when they're not sinful, they're of less importance. Father, I pray that in this Advent season, and not only in this Advent season, we would recommit ourselves to digging deep into the truth of the teachings of Jesus Christ, of the teachings of Scripture, contemplating the truth that you have revealed, that we might receive the gift of humility and joy and worship. And out of that strength, serving our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, our friends, Father, transform us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.